Hi there, Neil here. Obviously, you love to travel. That's why you're listening to this podcast. Circa, our app available right now from the App Store on iOS, is filled with podcasts and guides for travelers. But more than that, it has a feature that we're calling the Circa Concierge, where you can have any question about any place you're traveling answered by real people on the ground. We're giving you a friend to ask anywhere in the world. And hey, if you've got questions about Barcelona, you might even get me. Because I love to help people discover my city. And if you're the same way for the city where you live, then we want you to become part of the Circa Concierge too. Right now, we're searching for concierges in Barcelona, Rome, London, Paris, Madrid, Venice, and New York City. Don't see your city listed? That's okay. We'll be rolling out new cities throughout the year, and yours might just be next. If you love where you live and love to help travelers, sign up now to be a Circa Concierge. Help out our users and earn tips for the knowledge you have about your own city or country. Head over to circatravel.com forward slash concierge and sign up today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right. Cheers. Cheers. We're going to Portugal. (laughs) A destination isn't always a place. Sometimes it's a new way of seeing things. I'm Neil Innes. And I'm Andres Bartos. From Frequency Machine, this is Passport. Your ticket to everywhere. Portugal, on the western part of the Iberian Peninsula between Spain and the battering Atlantic Ocean, was once one of Europe's most commanding powers. A vast maritime history, ancient architecture, incredible people, hospitality, food, and most importantly, wine. Portugal is a rich and old place. The south, the Algarve, is pretty warm and fertile. While in the northern part of the country, it's rocky, windy, rugged, sparsely populated. It's tough. And right in the middle of these wilds of the north, you'll find the Douro Valley. One of the hardest places to grow grapes and make wine on earth. Between the steep terrace hills, the treacherous river rapids, and the searing hot summers, a diamond has formed in the rough. What's pretty remarkable is that the place and many of the feisty female winemakers that live here, much like the grapes, are also some of the most resilient. 
The Douro is the oldest demarcated wine region, and it was nearly wiped out in the 1800s from a deadly vine plague. But today, the valley may be facing its biggest threat yet. Hotter summers, frostbitten winters, and unpredictable rains. Nature is changing rapidly, and the Douro's future looks uncertain. This week on Passport, producer Jennifer Carr heads there to discover a land of wine, women, and how the people of the Douro are fighting back. Extreme winemaking. Extreme winemaking. <laughs> <laughs> You've never been to Portugal. I've never been to Portugal, no. Oh, man, you're missing out. Been. It's incredible. I know. It is incredible, isn't it? It's it really like is. It's like really flown under the radar, yeah. I think. It's one of these underrepresented, underappreciated, just glorious Atlantic, Atlantic meets Mediterranean. Yeah, no, the Douro is like, it's a region that was repressed from even making wine for such a long time. Here's a question. Are you a wine person? Or is this your, (laughs) I mean, with a glass in your hand? (laughs) (laughs) I'm recording with a bottle of wine. Uh, I'd say so. Um, But I did a wine tasting in Portugal uh, in the Douro. And that was what kind of got me into the region. I was just like, this is mad. Why aren't people talking about this? Yeah. There's so much love and passion and commitment put into it. It's the oldest demarcated region in the world and no one's talking about it. Yeah. That's so weird. Like they've got 250 indigenous varietals of grape Jeez. there. So I'm, I think it's the most any, like, especially given that Portugal is a pretty small country, they have more than anywhere else in the world. It's pretty exceptional. I first came to Portugal's Douro Valley in 2019. It was love at first sip. Between the terraced vineyards that snake along the river's hairpin bends to the sparkly-eyed old men who sit in sleepy village squares at dusk, pondering poker or chess, shucking little marinated snails like peanuts out of their shells. Yep, this place got me enchanted from the get-go. The Douro coaxes you back in time, with a generosity and a safe tranquility that disarms. It's a leave your house unlocked and welcome mat at the door kind of place. It's also impossible to imagine anything bad happening here. With the COVID situation, it was really like a a bomb coming for all of us. This is Sandra Tavares, ex-professional volleyball player, international model, and nowadays, a world-class winemaker in the heart of Portugal's port wine country, the Douro Valley. She's had a hell of a year. So we had to learn and to teach our team how to behave and to, to keep working in the vineyards and in the winery in order to be safe. But we, we have a fantastic team that believed on us and, and continued that we never stopped. After an unpredictably wet spring that meant some emergency maintenance against humidity on her vines, the pandemic hit. The wine estate that she launched with husband Jorge back in 2001 was under imminent threat. COVID brought a deep uncertainty about their sales and frozen contracts, but the grapes continued to grow and the annual harvest wasn't going anywhere. They had no choice but to keep calm and keep growing despite the entire world going into lockdown. Harvest for us, it's so meaningful because in, all, in all ways because it's, it's finalizing a cycle of one year, you know? As I come to discover, 
Sandra's cheery resilience is not the exception. In one of the world's toughest places to produce wine, it's actually the norm. This is the Douro, a place for wine lovers, warriors, and women who are all changing the face of viticulture, one glass at a time. The N222 in Portugal has been voted by Avis as the best road in the world to drive. 27 miles, 93 bends, and home to endless sculpted terrain. Snaking from Portugal's sleepy, sun-drenched river town of Peso de Rigua, sitting on the western fringe of Portugal's demarcated port wine region, 20 kilometers along the contours of the Douro River to the picturesque pueblo of Pinhao. It's a road for petrolheads and nature lovers in equal measure. Blinding emerald hillsides, ancient villages with church spires, and bells that chime erratically, nail-biting sheer drops, and of course, miles upon miles of bulging, juicy vines. I grew up in the, in the Douro. I, I lived there until I was 15 years old. I met up with Oscar Quevedo, a third-generation member of the world-famous Quevedo Port wine family, one sunny Monday afternoon on the banks of the River Douro in Porto. We caught up in Gaia, a neighbourhood on the south of the river, in the cellars of his Covedo tasting room. I, I only realised how intense, how rich, how, diver, how, how diverse, how amazing the Douro is when I had the possibility of travelling to 10 or 15 different countries, visit uh, dozens of wineries and realise that there's nothing close. The more you go outside of those uh, populated villages and get lost in the wildness of the Douro, it's when you see that the Douro is still virgin. It's still wild. By the way, Gaia, as locals refer to it, is a mini-cobbled neighbourhood consisting of warehouses that were built for the arrival, storage and distribution of casks coming in and off boats arriving from the Douro. Today, these warehouses are chic galleries, tasting spots and high-end boutique restaurants or hotels, all rich with history and often the scent of oak and finely fermented grapes. This is a region that's been closeted for wine lovers, and unfairly so. Unlike the diverse Tirar in France's Languedoc, or the punchy Riocas that put Spain on the map, or even Italy's knockout Tuscan Chiantis, Portugal's wine scene has, until recently, remained pretty much in the shade. Along with Spain, Portugal forms the stretch of southern Europe's Iberian Peninsula. Millions flock here annually, primarily because of its 1,115 miles of raw Atlantic coastline. Isolated coves, killer surf spots, and pristine golden sands. The country has rightfully earned its stripes as one of the top places for beach junkies and surf nuts in Europe, maybe even the world. Inland, though, Portugal seems to have sidestepped getting much attention at all, until recently. Hopping on a boat and heading up the Douro River from the country's principal port city, Porto, you'll find a land that's borderline bucolic. The beat is slower, the humans-to-nature ratio bigger. 
and the geography good enough for UNESCO. Weeping willows protruding over lakes, rivers with more dragonflies than boats, and terraced fields bulging with grapes. Somehow, a big boozy chunk of Portugal got forgotten, or at least overlooked, including, for the longest chapter, its buried wine scene. So the, the Durwan region was first demarcated in 1756. It was the first wine region in the world to be demarcated and delimited at the same time. So it marks a change in the wine business, 1756. At the same time, a few other things were, were implemented. When he says implemented, Oscar basically means clamped down on. It was no longer allowed to plant uh, white vines, so no white wine, no white port. All port had to be exported from Porto. All the thousand growers of grapes in the Douro and winemakers were not allowed to get into the export business. Up until Portugal's joining of the European Union in 1986, continued restrictions on winemakers in the Douro meant there was little to no freedom to trade and export wine freely to other places outside the country. For winemakers from Portugal, which isn't a very big country, the only way to succeed was to get their product into other markets. For Portugal's wine scene, this was the tipping point. Suddenly, the freedom to grow, market and produce wine on their terms gave Douro's winemakers the break they needed. The valley shifted out of old world thinking and the dusty, male-dominated world of port. Wines and the potential for Portugal's wider viticulture began to open up. Wine was back on the table. Diversity is important for, for the wine trade in general. We don't all want to be tasting or talking about the same things. It's exactly each individual story, each individual person, each individual grape variety or region. This is Francisca Vanzella, the daughter of renowned Portuguese winemaker Cristiano Vanzella. She's the youngest generation of the Vanzella family, who established themselves as an important port shipper family back in the late 1700s. Port is a wine that is fortified during fermentation, killing yeast and leaving the residual sugars that give it its characteristic sweetness. The Brits love it, especially at Christmas. Just ask my grandma. Today, Francisco is a major player in the modern Duro, with big visions for the valley and its notoriously distinct terroir. She's also on a mission to support other local female winemakers and viticulturalists keen to grab a slice of the global limelight. That has forced us to really look at our value, look at what we're different at, and target different countries around the world and show the world what Portugal can produce on a quality level, not just volume level. Speaking of quality, wine lovers, if you've never tried a Portuguese wine, you're in for a treat. They're very seductive. I think that's the best word to describe ports and oral wines because they're, they're very fruity, they're very uh, velvety and very involving because, because of all the different varieties. We can have um, many, many different fruit profiles. So it, it, it's hard to pinpoint when you're tasting a wine from the Douro that it's Douro because it's so diverse. So anybody that's come across wines from the Douro can have had so many different experiences. Terroir 
is basically a fancy name for the environmental conditions, especially soil and climate, that influence a wine's flavor and aroma. In the Dura Valley's case, conditions are harsh. It's the driest and hottest subregion for wine in Portugal. As I'm about to discover, the Douro is a place of extremes, of paradoxes in people and the climate, nature as a whole. And it's almost been wiped out by both people and plagues more than once. But somehow, the people of the Douro and its vines keep finding their way back. Wowzers. I'm totally there. <laughs> you look so sad. No, I'm like, I'm like melancholic. I'm so just relaxed. This is the rare passport coronavirus episode where you were actually there. I was there. Yeah. It look was at, lush. Look at you. And there were no masks, <laughs> just port. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, oh, no, this is puts us in a really hard position because now we both really hate you now, Jen. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, can because... live with it. <laughs> I'm going to ply you with port. It'll be all right. <laughs> so jealous. So jealous. But you know the place, you know that place pretty well, right? Mm, yeah. Yeah. yeah so nice. It's a land that time forgot, yeah. you know, just dragonflies and old gits in squares eating snails (laughs) no one has an agenda no one has a clock like no one cares it's just you flow with nature that's it so port could only come from porto yeah it's like champagne champagne. from champagne exactly man i didn't see i did not know that and i i'm definitely a wine person (laughs) i mean i'm not a port person i was gonna say port is disgusting Let's just put that out. I'm sorry, Portugal. It depends. I mean, I was, I was, I was convinced at being in Oscar's tasting room. We tried the white port, and that was it. Like, okay, I'm with you in the white. No longer in the like granny at Christmas port. That that is just gross. Yeah, not at granny at Christmas, Kansas anymore. Sorry to anyone (laughs) listening who thinks you know you put on a robe and drink some of that (laughs) swill. But the white port is very nice. Yeah. Yeah. There, the the one thing that seems to come wherever you are, is that uh, the harder the terrain, the better the wine. Yeah, it's almost like the more you have to put the vines through, yeah. the more they reward you. How crazy is that, though? Yeah. It's like torturing the grapes. Yeah, it's to like tough love. Wine. Yeah. yeah. And then all these territories are now facing like this thing that took so long to figure out in this place. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we won't be yeah. able to ever yeah. do it here again. If you've got one type of grape or one type of grain, you're kind of fucked. Right. Because you that's what... You need to keep it like right. super diverse because right. then you've got as many grapes as possible because the whole nature of all climate change is so unpredictable. That's yeah. the thing. So it's like, okay, let's like cast the net wide and just keep learning from the vines every single harvest. That's what they do, you know? Like... Yeah, not easy. God, wine doesn't go away. (laughs) It won't go away. (laughs) Imagine. No. After the break, more trekking around the vineyards with the Duro with Jen, plus the story of Antonia Ferreira, the woman who saved wine, and the others trying to keep it going through the tough times ahead. We'll see you after the break. Hi, everyone. Circa's recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. 
And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. The Douro hasn't always felt this idyllic. 200 years ago, it was on the brink of full-scale devastation, thanks to a deadly vine plague called Phylloxera. This plague was a result of European botanists and vine growers bringing back native vines that they discovered in North America. But these same American vines carried small yellow mites, which fed on their roots and sucked away at their sap, bringing disease. The valley was almost wiped out. Almost. One unassuming young woman came to the rescue with an unheard of approach, grafting the vines with the exact same vines that had originally caused the plague. The killer was also the cure. And the woman's name? Donna Antonia Ferreira. She was raised in a very conservative way, so a rural upbringing, uh, nothing much was expected uh, of her, just a traditional, you know, um, girl upbringing in, in, in the countryside. This is Luisa Otzabal. She's talking about her great, 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 great grandmother, Antonia the same woman who helped to introduce grafting into the valley and someone who many locals consider a bit of a legend. Luisa works at Quinta Valle do Miao, in the northeast of the valley, also known as the Duro Superior. It's a name that's well-deserved. It's staggering. Until as recently as the late 19th century, the Douro was as remote as it gets. We're talking no direct road access, let alone the best road in the world. A treacherous river with grade five rapids and hundreds of miles of rolling hills, blanketed with gnarly vines that locals have broken their backs and limbs on. By all accounts, life in the Douro for middle-class piano-playing Antonia in the 1800s was kind of boring. But at a young age, she was coerced by her successful port-making father to wed her cousin, Bernardo Ferreira II. Their partnership quickly turned sour. Soon after marrying, things fell apart because of his extravagant bohemian lifestyle. I think uh, at a certain point she was spending uh, more time in the Douro and him in Porto. And um, he had a theater in his house. <laughs> And, you know, he was very uh, connected to Porto and I think also Lisbon, aristocracy. And yeah, totally it. We believe that she was already separated from him when, when he died. When Antonia was only 33, her husband and cousin died. She was left a widow with two kids and the weight of her husband's debt on her shoulders. So, true to form... She rolled her sleeves up and got busy. She was named by the family the one who should take the decisions and most of the family were in favour of rapidly selling the stocks of wines that he had. And she said that it, it wasn't a good idea. I mean, we are wine family, our course business is wine. 
I want to keep the wines and see and, 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 and get rid of the rest, meaning furniture very expensive that he had uh, used to, to one of uh, to several houses he owned in Porto, a horse carriage that was state of the art <laughs> and things like that. Louisa's ancestor clearly didn't waste any time selling off her deceased husband's material goods. Antonia kept her main focus, holding on to the vines. Pretty quickly, Antonia made a name for herself as the Valley's newest female wine entrepreneur. She muscled her way into a man's world, going where few women had dared before her. A famous story about her lingers on in the history books, about one fated boat ride down the Douro with Baron Joseph James Forrester. A leading scientist in early viticulture and someone who found fame mapping the wild contours of the Douro. He was also an admirer of Antonia's. In a bid for Antonia to escape the pressure of the vineyards and find a little peace one day, it's reported that she and the Baron travelled downriver on a boat. But as they approached the infamous rapids in the Cachao de Valeria Gorge, the vessel capsized. Forrester got dragged down, apparently by the weight of a belt of gold buttons. But Antonia survived. Her skirt ballooned out, making her float to the riverbank unscathed. The tragedy echoed through the merchants' taverns in Porto for weeks. Although Antonia's name was barely mentioned, she did start earning attention for her response to the phylloxera plague, though, especially after she took the decision to head to England in the hope that she might find a solution. Here was Antonia, a new widow, already having sold many of her valuables to keep her family's vines and livelihood. Everything was in jeopardy. So in the mid-1860s, Antonia made the long, hard journey out of the valley on a quest to England to get the land of her childhood back on track. In her properties, it was where she first planted um, with, with the grafting method. Because the, the American rootstock resists the, um, the phylloxera um, plague, you're then safe from the vineyard being attacked by, by, these, by these plagues. The grafting technique worked. She also began experimenting with planting different grape varieties. Soon, other parts of the Douro were adopting the same method, and as a result, many vines that were on the brink of decay survived. It's becoming clearer to me, the Douro is a metaphor for endurance against the odds. The toughness of the elements, the people, the nature, through resilience, this is a place that thrives. You know, there's a, a Portuguese writer that says, Douro is a monument to efforts. Because you see the terraces and you see how it's carved, you know, in order to, to try to, to contain the, wa the, the, the water for the vineyards. You see effort all around. It's like painted in the hills. The desire to endure and adapt in the Douro is something that CEO Luisa Amorim is also no stranger to. Luisa passionately runs Quinta Nova de Nossa Senora do Carmo a luscious family-owned vineyard that extends 1.5 kilometers along the north bank of the river. The indigenous grapes planted on the Quinta all produce letter A wines and have won many international awards. In 2005, Luisa decided to be the first in the valley to go one step further, 
So she opened a wine hotel and wine museum, bringing a fresh new direction for wine and female leadership into the valley. I'm excited to hear how she's carved out a space for herself in the world of wine and the lessons that she's learned along the way. I started in the port wine trade a long, long time ago. When Doro Valley in port wine trade, I think, uh, was a really a different reality. When Doro wines were starting and port wine was still the role in the, in the Doro region. So I might say that when I start, I'm the only one. I was almost spoiled, I believe. <laughs> I was also like the kid among, among them. So it was very nice. Uh, I was very embraced. When she says them, of course, she's referring to the old Duro, a quintessential boys' club. But has that really changed from an old world of merchants to become more inclusive and open to everybody? Luisa, like so many of the key female players in the Duro, saw beyond the harvest and a business just built on exports and hard labour, crushing bunches of grapes by foot, according to the traditional methods. She had a wider vision. Or for the record, many of the vineyards still hold on to the tradition of grape treading to macerate the grapes down and help begin the fermentation process. Yes, they do clean their feet beforehand. Beyond the wines and the bottles, she wasn't just one of the first female CEOs in the Douro. She was also one to pivot the Douro as a lifestyle destination for wine lovers. I must say that we were, I think, the, almost the only one. <laughs> The only people that were receiving someone and then uh, we start to open the the, the hotel and uh, again we didn't have anybody <laughs> and then uh, step by step uh, we had someone at the during the weekends and then uh, well some dinner time and then uh, after four or five years I decided to open uh, the um, the restaurant during the lunchtime and then we start to, well, to change the menus and then we did the, muse- the museum. So when we, we noticed that Doro Valley was changing and Port Wine was, or, um, or Porto City was changing and the tourism in Portugal was changing, we always followed the opportunity. And here's the paradox. The Douro today is both unrecognizable in terms of the experiences hidden seductively in its contours, Boutique four-by-four rides through the vines, Michelin-starred meals, six senses spas hugging the river. But at the same time, it somehow hangs on to its raw, rugged and rebellious wildness. Here, nature really does have the final say. In the world of wine, getting smart to the threat of climate change is everything. Louisa surprises me with her philosophical take on things. We have to make a lot of question marks and thinking, you know, uh, about the old people and the old, your grandparents, grandparents, the way that people, you know, lived and so many things that people were right and people were correct. Sometimes but biodynamics, it's like that people look to the nature and they decide according to what they feel. Is Louisa hinting that in a once alpha male land... The missing ingredient for success is actually female intuition. I always say sometimes it's like the plants in your house. You know, there are some people that look to the plants and they feel if they, they, they need water or if they don't need water. You know, there are plants in some houses, they are always perfect. And in some other houses, they're always dying. You know, you don't know why, because it's the feeling that the people understand or not. 
the the way of living of the plants. And it's the same of the nature. So you have to to wait and be patient. Louisa could double as a life coach for me right now, albeit an extremely glamorous one who happens to run an 18th century wine estate with an infinity pool and a wine museum on site. Her point about balance really gets me. Is this the secret for wineries in a future threatened by climate change? To go back to the rhythms of nature and work with it, not against it. Jen's got a girlfriend. <laughs> I think that's a pause, I, right? I did have a bit of a girl crush on her. It's true. I just love. I love her. Her great, 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 great grandmother's wherewithal. To it's an go, incredible to, story. It's though. amazing to go. We don't need the horse and cart. We don't need advantage. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Let's just do the wine. We'll sit on the floor. Yeah. The you vines know, are worth more than this yeah. piece of furniture and this state-of-the-art horse carriage. Yeah. <laughs> she was on it. She died the richest woman in Portugal. Wow. And she built the hospital. She built the help with the railroad. One of the vineyards was like she made a rail stop by the vineyard so that people could come in and go out. Yeah. And so she's like a wine Pablo she Escobar. She's super on it, yeah. Wine, <laughs> wine Pablo Escobar. <laughs> Where all, all the guys in the, in this story, like all the husbands, they were just like drunk merchants. There were a lot of drunk merchants, I think, just dominating the landscape. But and she was the one that the, found the solution, you know. She found the solution that was also the problem. Yeah, It's like a little, a little flu vaccine, a little a, bit of the, bit of a, yeah. little bit of the disease to cure, to cure it. And those are still... They're, the still, they're still the vines now. Today, yeah. That's wild. It's crazy. It's nice to hear somebody kind of not really be that phased as well by, this is a weird thing to say, but by not, climate not change. be phased by climate change. She's like, <laughs> you know mean, what, she was, we'll be okay. I was going to say she was very Portuguese about it's it. She's just, like, yeah. it's going to be all right. Yeah. Which I didn't expect. Man. <laughs> I was like, um, <laughs> so to your point, we're always going to have wine, Neil. We might not be here, but the wine will be The here. vines are going to be all right. Yeah. 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 Well, <laughs> let's find out about the what the future holds. Given that wine is amongst the most delicate and demanding of agricultural products, it goes without saying that the threat of extreme weather patterns, freak hailstorms, acidifying soils, or intense mildew-forming humidity, that's a killer for healthy vines, by the way, it need to be expected and learned from fast. Wanting to learn just how threatening climate change might be for the Douro, I decided to track down someone who could enlighten me Antonio Graca, like so many in the Douro wine world, has a passion for grapes running through his veins. Portugal is a, a country of wine. So, I mean, anywhere you go in the country, uh, you, you, have, you have wine regions, you have wines, and you have a very diverse type of uh, wines being made in, in such a small country. Wine being a result of a, a, an open-air activity uh, climate is a major driver to its uh, success and to the quality and uh, and the quantities you can make in any in any single year. The son of a port winemaker, Antonio decided to swap his education in agricultural engineering for an enology degree back on impulse in 1985. Enology, by the way, is the study of grapes and wine. This impulse paid off. It led him to become a talented winemaker. He was even nominated in 2010 for the Best Winemaker of the Year Award in the Red Wine category at the prestigious International Wine Challenge. But that's not all Antonio is renowned for. 
Today, he's a key figure and a pioneer in climate change research for the viticulture scene here in the Douro. We were observing in the fields how things were starting to be different from what they were before. Generically, we had quite a, a more stable situation than we uh, started to see after 2000. Uh, on one hand, let scientists and, and technical staff from companies to get together to partner with farmers and to start getting hard data on what was really going on. As Antonio and his team discovered, quite a lot was going on. We started to realise that uh, climate change, at the same time that it represented a, a couple of threats, was also offering a number of opportunities, especially if we could capitalize on that uh, diversity that we already had ancestrally, but that was being exacerbated by uh, the ongoing climate change. When Antonio says exacerbated, what he means is that the diversity of grape styles was growing in the region as a smart response to climate conditions. After all, the broader the style of grapes you plant, the better the chance some of them have of withstanding climate extremes and thriving, no matter what nature decides to throw at you. The major impact of climate change is an increase in variability, in climate variability. You can have a very warm, dry uh, year being followed by a very wet and cool year. So uh, this type of climatic variability um, led us to think that we had to adapt our production systems, our vineyards, our wineries, even our markets to the idea that diversity would be there. Adapting to diversity mightn't sound like a big deal, but in the world of viticulture, wineries only growing one type of grape put themselves at risk. This is because grapes, it turns out, have a spectrum of characteristics that all interact with climate shifts in different ways. Antonio refers to these as intervarietal clones. If you are looking into having higher temperatures more often, you will want to, ho to have those clones of, the, of these varieties that are more tolerant to heat. And that is what we have discovered last year. We were able to select, it was not Riga Nacional, it was with Tinta Roriz. Two popular Douro grape varieties. We were able to select a group of 12 clones among 257 that together those clones would on average lower the temperature of the leaf by about three to four degrees Celsius, which is huge. He's right. It's a big deal for winemakers. They're always looking for ways to ensure cooler temperatures and with the right levels of photosynthesis. Again, the Douro strikes me as the ultimate metaphor for endurance. It's a region that's been there producing high-quality wines as a business for at least uh, three to 400 years. It has uh, withstood uh, incredible challenges, both from the, the, of the place, which is hard to work and live, and still uh, the people in there were able to bring their wines out and make it a household name across, across the world. 
any any time they had to face uh, such a, a challenge and and solved it, they became better equipped for the next challenge to come. Uh, this is the definition of resilience as a concept. And I think the Doro and the people in Doro, if anything, are the paradigm of resilience. It's wonderful because, you know, for the longest time, as we've been doing like agro industry, you know, as a civilization, yep. thousands expand, of expand. heads of cattle or whatever it is. And this is the shit. It's not working. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And the fact that he he brings it back to that very simple thing. It's like a terrain that is difficult, but you make it work. And then the variety is what saves you. Yeah. It's it's so simple, but it's it's wonderful. It's like, no, this is this is the duro. Like we're not changing this you. We are land. we are working with you. Yeah. yeah. In Australia and some of the vineyards in Australia, which are just like massive. The big vineyards are getting to that stage now where yeah. they just own everything around them. Yep. Mm. And it's like fields and fields and fields and fields and fields of one type of grape. Yeah. Yeah. I mean um, I think not only is that a risk, there. yeah. It's a it's a danger. Yeah. If that grape doesn't vibe with the climate, then you're in trouble, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. And also just that homogeneity. It's almost like mass agricultural farming. The taste of a, of a beef burger that's been produced like that versus a, a cow, you know, in a small farm when, you know. Who it's was completely listening to different Bach. experience. <laughs> yeah. Those back burgers. <laughs> I had a I had a cheeseburger once in in Cadiz. It was from a wild cow. It was okay. A, it was this. Uh, it was it's a special breed of Spanish cow. Okay. And the I took a bite into it and it made me cry. Really? Yeah. Like tears coming out of your face. Yep. Oh. Wow. It's only happened to me like two times in my life eating wow. some eating food. That happens to me every time I open a bottle of wine. It doesn't matter where the grapes have come from. I haven't seen any tears tonight. Yeah, tonight you haven't cried. At least you kept it to yourself. Tell me. (laughs) From your trip and then coming back, what do you think of now when you're thinking about that place? My hope is that it doesn't get so popular that it changes. You know, there's something so special about that region. They've really got the balance of the real Duro, you know? I think the people there, they manage to maintain a harmony because they're not greedy. It's like, A, they don't really have a priority to do it. They don't really have the the, the wherewithal, but they actually just want to keep their thing kind of quiet. That's a really amazing like thing that only re- that happens on the peninsula, though. Like, we're okay. Like, we don't want to yeah. do anymore. Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, can, can you just like leave us alone? Yeah. yeah. And Slow it's it down. so lovely about it. Like, And that's the kind of the... The, the juxtaposition, isn't it? The more you want to, you want to experience that loveliness. But yeah. It's like you want to hold on to that. They want to hold on to it, and you want to feel that when you yeah. go in as a yeah, tourist exactly. or, a, or a consumer. Something where there's still character, and you still feel like you're in the place. And yeah, you're it's real. To it's authentic. Yeah. yeah, there's no performance in the Dora. That's for sure. It is real. You know, it's not this sort of glossy veneered version. It's like you really are getting the real deal. Today's saved pins are very boozy and very beautiful, both necessities, but also unavoidable ones in Portugal. Number one is Quinta Vale do Miau, the last great project of Doña Antonia and the birthplace of iconic wine. This sprawling Quinta is open for semi-private tastings and 4 by 4 tours among the vines. Call ahead to book one of their unique experiences 
and tell them who sent you. Number two, Quinta Nova de Nosa. This is the original wine hotel in the Douro. It serves up a ridiculous view of the valley, award-winning food, an infinity pool, and even a wine museum. It goes without saying that you can drink world-class wines here in any number of different tasting sessions with CEO Luisa's welcoming team. Number three, wine and soul. Sandra and Jorge want to create wines with passion, soul, and a sense of place. And they've nailed it with wine and soul. Located in a particularly scenic part of the Dodo, the Piñao Valley, here you can take a tour of parcels of 80-year-old vines tucked into terraces carved out by dynamite a century ago. Number four, Ryan's Lab in Porto. Run by expert Duro wine guide Rhino Paz, this cavernous Porto wine shop focuses on sustainable wines, but also delivers bespoke tours, helping guests discover Portuguese food, always with a sustainable local slant. If you're lucky, Ryan might even offer you a shot of his homemade vermouth. And number five, Quevedo Tasting Room Gaia. Oscar's Tasting Room on the opposite side of the river in Villanova de Gaia is a cool, cavernous warehouse of elegant whitewashed walls where people come to taste sports while a fado singer bathes guests in the traditional melancholic song of Portugal, fado. Ask for one of Oscar's jammy tawnies or try our particular favorite, a 20-year-old vintage white port. Just remember to keep it in the fridge. That's all for this week, guys. Passport will be back next Tuesday with the much-anticipated return of Miss Infonation. This time, fast cars, beautiful people, big sunglasses, football, pizza, pasta, the Catholic Church, exorcisms, and the Mafia. That's right. This time, me and Andres get to the bottom of the biggest lies, myths, and stereotypes of Italy with help from our friend, Dario Flores Darcais. We'll see you then. Ciao. This week's show was written and produced by Jennifer Carr and edited by Harriet Davies and me. A huge thanks to Francesca Vanzella, Luisa Orzabal, Luisa Amorim, Ryan Opaz, Joao Brites, Antonio Graca, and Oscar Quevedo for making this episode happen. Our theme tune and music in this episode is by the incredible Nick Turner with other tuneful support coming from Mondo Germo, T8, Hint of Mint, Music Box Classics, Emily, Oracle, and River Deep, Mountain Dew. The show is mixed and mastered by Julian Kwasneski. Eliza Engel is our production assistant. Stacy Book, Dominic Ferrari, and Avi Glajanski are cold white port at sunset. They also executive produced the show, which is hosted by me and a man who only opens bottles with his teeth or by shooting at them with an old pistol. Andres Bartos. See you in the next place.